Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, George Soriel discusses his time as an executive in the Trump Organization. He's interviewed by CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. George, thank you for joining us here on Book TV. Uh, thank you, you for having me, John. It's my pleasure. Well, you've written a, a, an interesting book about Donald Trump and your experiences with him primarily before he was president. You're sort of the man you call a blue-collar billionaire, a loyalist, a visionary, that sort of thing. Um, and it really does sort of pull the curtain back in certain ways. But I want to establish a couple questions up front. Sure. One, uh, you just left as EVP of the Trump uh, Organization, but you were there working for him during the writing of this book, correct? That's correct. Uh, I started working in the Trump Organization at the end of 2006, and I literally just resigned uh, this past Friday, June 7th. Mazel tov, as they say. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and also your co-author, uh, Damian Bates, his wife is also an EVP at the Trump Organization, uh, That's correct? correct. She's on the other side of the ocean. She's EVP and uh, general manager of Trump International Golf Links in Aberdeen. I just wanted to get that out there just to establish the framework. Did you, in the writing of this book, um, give uh, a copy, advanced copy to anyone in the Trump Organization to review before it was published? I gave everyone a final copy. Now, you know, look, I did a number of interviews, so there was some fact-checking going on, mm -hmm. but no one really saw anything until it was done, and that was including the president. I mean, he got the final copy that you have. That, that we have. And did he make any edits in it? No, there was no, uh, at the beginning, from the outset, Damien and I endeavored to not go down that path. Uh, if they were going let to let us do it, they had to trust us. They had to trust what we would do. And no, there were no, uh, no edits aside from basic fact-checking. Good. Well, and you were a lawyer at the organization. So I, I was a lot of those particulars uh, play, a, play a big role. Tell me, uh, and the audience, the thing that they might not understand about Donald Trump, despite the fact he's probably one of the best-known people on the planet. Well, I think one of the, you know, it's interesting. I, I've obviously been talking to a lot of people about the book and, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that there's this misconception out there that President Trump is a guy that doesn't listen to people. Uh, he's a guy that steamrolls over other people's opinions. He does whatever he wants. And as a guy that worked very closely with him on a number of projects for many, many years, I think the truth is actually the opposite. Um, I'm kind of taken back to an experience I had very, very early on in my career with him where we had just finished up a difficult day in a construction site. There were a whole number of issues that we were dealing with. Uh, some things were going our way, some things we weren't happy about, but it was a long, tough day. And we were just walking across the site, just me and him, and he said to me, you know, George, people will frequently ask me, how did I do it? How did I get successful? How did I accomplish everything I did? And I tell them, look, it's really easy. I look around the world, I see what people want, I listen to people, and I just, I give them what they want. And I give think... Give the people what they want. I give the people what they want. And it's really simple. They're simple words, but there's really a profound wisdom in that statement. Look around the world. I mean, this is advice now that, you know, like you, I have small children. And, you know, when I talk to my son... <clears throat> I tell them things like that. Don't just go through the world blindly. Look around. See what people like. See what people don't like. Be aware of your surroundings. Because really, that ability to listen and understand, it's a fundamental aspect of, I think, what ultimately is going to make you a success sure. or a failure. I mean, look, we have things like education, going to the right colleges, all that stuff is important. But what I found is that there's a lot of people that just, they don't know how to listen. You know, and if you don't know, you know, let's take in a, a applicable context like the work environment, okay? If you don't know what your superior wants, you're just flailing, you're wasting your time. Well, look, uh, look. So that, that simple ability to, you know, so, to take it back to your original question, um, you know, he's a guy that really, I think he has his pulse on what people want. And you also say listening. He, he, listens, he listens to other people. He solicits their opinion. I, I wonder why you think that's not more apparent in, in his presidency. He's not known for, publicly at least, listening to experts. He's somebody who goes with his gut, seems to have deep beliefs, and will stick to that, um, despite what some people might tell him are the facts. Now, 
some of his co-workers seem to think that's an inspirational quality. He has the ability to envision something and achieve it. But to explain to me the gap between that Donald Trump you worked with and what many folks see. Well, I think there's a big difference between listening and absorbing and then ultimately, you know, look, uh, in no way, shape or form am I going to suggest that, you know, he's going to do what he wants to do. So although he may take in a lot of information, he may seek to get the opinions of many, many others, uh, and I think he does take them into consideration. It's not like he just goes in, goes in one ear and out the other, as they say. But ultimately, he's a confident guy who's got a pretty good pulse on what's going on. He will make his own decisions. Now, again, taking it back to 2016, whatever you think of him politically, whatever side, mm -hmm. you know, the coin you're on, it doesn't really matter. You have to have some level of admiration and respect for what he achieved. He came out with a very competitive, you know, Republican um, crew of people running against him in the primary, some big names, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the other side, we had Hillary, who was, you know, supposed to win it. Um, he didn't listen to the experts. Okay, he wasn't deterred by what people were saying. And I've said it a few times. I mean, I don't know if it was on CNN or whatever network, but the night before the election, I remember seeing no path to victory. He was down 8 to 10 points. There was no way this guy was going to win. And he didn't let it deter him. He felt that he had the pulse of the people. And ultimately, I think he was right. And, and that sort of will to power he has is something that I think folks need to acknowledge him as an extraordinary American figure beyond politics. He did achieve something that no one's ever done before, which Absolutely. is run for president from jump without any political or government or public service experience and achieve the presidency. And so... There's got to be something to learn from that for 100%. folks. And, you know, also, John, look at it's It's an unusual thing to have somebody that achieves such great success in different industries. Okay? Mm -hmm. He did very well in real estate at different levels. Mm -hmm. uh, he took his family business into Manhattan. Mm -hmm. He went into television, had a show that did really well. That's unusual. And then, oh, by the way, at 70 years old, he got elected president. So he's really had success, and I think it's something that people often don't give him credit for. He has achieved top-level success in several different industries. And, you know, look, he's an iconic figure. I, I think, again, whatever you want to say about him, you know, you have to name 100 people that had incredible amounts of influence over the past 50 years. He's probably going to be on that list somewhere. When you went to work for him, um, was the, the Apprentice was taking off. Yeah, The Apprentice was growing, uh, exciting times. And, and at that time, I mean, it, it seemed from your book that he was almost making more money from The Apprentice than he was from real estate, so much so that he didn't, you know, he preferred to get into licensing his name rather than taking out loans to build. Right. Is that, that accurate? I mean, I, I, I can't, you know, again, I was never really privy to the inside. I don't know exactly what he was making, but I, I, I think, and he, you know, he did make comments to me. It was money without risk. Okay, let's take a building like Trump World Tower, a 90-story building. There's a lot of risk there. You have to go get financing from mm -hmm. banks. Build it, you know, go through the permitting, build it, sell it um, to get a profit margin, which is relatively tight. I think it's a lot tighter than people imagine. Uh, television is different. Go on the air, you do some shows, you get your checks. I mean, it's much, I'm not suggesting it's easy, but in terms of risk relative to development, it's a, certainly a simpler proposition. Do you think the success of that show provided the, um, the ground for him to run for president? And if so, what about it made people start thinking him as a potential president in some way. I think the success of the show, you know, look, I, I grew up here. Uh, I immigrated to the United States when I was a kid, uh, came to New York, eventually grew up in northern Jersey. Um, you know, Trump was a kind of a larger-than-life guy, mm -hmm. but he was really a, you know, East Coast, Coast, New York, New Jersey guy, uh, primarily residential, commercial developments in the city. Then he had the casinos and... You know, I think The Apprentice, along with the addition of Don, Ivanka, and Eric to the company, really took the brand global. The, the public imagination. You, you talk, there's one scene in the book where you talk about taking him to a Roger Waters concert at sure. uh, uh, Madison Square Garden, which I did not know he was a big Pink Floyd fan, so that was kind of fun. But <laughs> uh, people were shouting, uh, President Trump at him. You say, even then. Yeah. That's, and, that's, and was that's, that a kind of a common thing in your experience? Common thing, I mean, that was right around the time uh, we were actually en route to Europe and, you know, mm -hmm. we stopped off at the concert. I, I, I don't remember the exact year, but 
you know, yeah, I, w I would see that all the time. And even prior to him, you know, even really talking about the presidency, when you went out with him publicly, he was a figure that people were really happy to see. Uh, the charisma. Assertive. Charisma. From, and and I, I, the, the appeal to me was very interesting. It cut across all ages. You know, the all ages, all demographics. You know, there was something that, you know, people really were drawn to him. They would stop, take a selfie, take an autograph. It's fame. I mean, I saw, I, I saw, yeah, it's fame. I saw it time and time again. And, you know, I think what was different about him is that he loved it. Okay, this is a guy... Yeah, he's not shy. No, he goes into a restaurant. He's not looking to have some table, you know, off to the side or in a back room. You know, he wants to be right up front. He wants to talk to people. When he goes to his clubs, it's not uncommon for him to go table to table, talk to everybody that's there. Mm -hmm. He's a very sociable guy, um, remarkably easy to talk to, and you've probably met him. Uh, very approachable, down-to-earth. Um, you know, disarming, not what people expect. When uh, he was in that period where people were uh, saying run for president, and this was around 2012, had he ever talked to you about the, the presidents he most admired, the political figures he most admired? I, I, I never spoke to him a lot about um, presidents that he admired. I mean, it's well known that he had a you know, strong affinity for Reagan. Also criticized um, Reagan a great deal in the late 1980s, criticized him about Japan. But that's fine. I mean, you, you know, look, I, I, I think that's one of the refreshing. You don't have to support every single thing that someone does. Um, you know, I, I kind of lament for the days where, you know, look, I'm a Republican. I vote for Republicans. But if I see a Democratic candidate that's got a good idea, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, Donald uh, Trump felt the same way. I mean, he donated to plenty of Democrats. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's unfortunate you know, I, again, I don't want to have a discussion about, you know, where it came from, but it's okay for people to be like that. It's okay that you have a friend, you know, that supports yeah. another candidate. And I, I think a lot of that has been lost. I, I agree. Um, although I, I do think that the division that some of the mainstream media suggests, I don't think it's as pronounced as we're led to believe. Hmm. I think at the end of the day, people are pretty simple. They're kind of like you and me. What do I want in life? I want to have a stable country. I want to have a place where I could work, prosper. I want to have a nice future for my kids. Mm -hmm. I want to have assurance that the government is protecting me, looking out for my interests. And I, I think people of all, you know, whatever the demographic, it's the same thing. Yeah, no, I don't I, think I'm, we're I'm as divided to, as we're led to believe. I, I completely agree with you there that the Americans not as divided as it seems, but certainly our politics are more polarized than the people. And do you think that Donald Trump has exacerbated those divides as part of his political rise? I don't know. I I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's solely him. Um, but not solely him. I'm just asking, do you think he, in your observation, in his public persona, perhaps not privately, has exacerbated those divides? I think that... People from time to time just get too excited uh, about something that was said or something that was done. Uh, and look, for um, I'm not for a minute suggesting that words don't matter. Mm -hmm. And so you're a lawyer. They do matter. And I would be disingenuous um, if I didn't admit that. Look, you know, other things that he says that I might not say. Of course not. Like what? You know, I don't want to get into any details, but let's just keep it general. Um, but that doesn't matter. You don't have to. Is there anyone on earth that you agree with everything, every no, single no, no. thing that as, somebody as, said? As Ed Koch, <clears throat> former mayor of New York, once said, if you agree with me 9 out of 12 times, vote for me. If you agree with 12 to 12, see a psychiatrist. So we, we got that kind of variation. But, I mean, again, you have this incredibly close relationship with this president before he runs. And so you've got unique insight into who he maybe really is and how much of a role he's playing right. uh, for his political base. Well, just, to go, the just to go back to you know, what we were discussing, um, I don't mean to not answer your question. I think it does answer your question. When Barack Obama mm -hmm. was elected president, mm -hmm. I didn't support his policies. I didn't really like the guy, to be honest with you. I, I thought he was intelligent and capable. And, but I shook it off the next morning, and I woke up and I said to myself, look, a lot of people seem to be happy that he was elected. And like it or not, he's now my president. Mm -hmm. And I wish him well, and I'm going to support him, okay? Because if he does well, I'm living in this country. Yep. We're all doing well. I don't think President Trump was ever given that level of respect 
from election night on, it was nothing but whether it was Russia or he wasn't qualified. So I think that's some, a lot of the polarization, sure. and this is how I'm answering your question, mm -hmm. I think it really began from the other side. Because so they never, I mean, I can remember sitting up in Trump Tower mm -hmm. and hearing the chants of not my president. Guess what? He is your president. He won a fair election. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important story about the polarization of America. I think John Wayne famously said after 1960 election, which he'd supported Richard Dixon, uh, I didn't vote for him, but he's my president. I hope he succeeds. That's right. Good idea. Now, famously, Rush Limbaugh said about uh, Barack Obama, I hope he fails. Um, around the time when you were at the Roger Waters concert, and Donald Trump, around the 2012 election is when you date it roughly, um, Trump was looking at running for president, and he was really pumping up this idea of the birther conspiracy theory, which many people think is a racist conspiracy theory. He was a prime proponent of it on Twitter and in speeches. Um, did you agree with that? I don't agree with that. I mean, you know, again, that's old news. It's not really something that I want to comment or talk about. But, um, you know, look, the question you're basically, the suggestion, is President Trump a racist, is ridiculous. No, 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 and, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm living proof. I mean, I myself am an immigrant from a diverse background. And Aren't he treated me, yeah, he treated me very well. I, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not calling Donald Trump a racist. I'm saying that conspiracy theory was racist. Would you disagree with that? It's an old, no. I, I, I you know, look, I don't want to comment on it. It's an okay. old story. Did he ever I, I, comment to you in private something that, you know, maybe said, you know, give the people what they want? Is this, was, it, was it something he really believed or was he something he thought worked for crowds? No, I think it's something that he believed. And, okay. you know, in the end, look, look at our business. We're, you know, developers. Um, you know, let's say we're building a hotel and a golf mm -hmm. course. Obviously, everything we're going to do is going to be the, the end game is to make people happy, to enjoy it so they come and they support the place. So certainly in our world as developers, giving people what they want is a recipe that works. And I think he applied that simple maxim to politics. And was it unconventional? Yeah, it was. Okay, but, but it worked. And it he overcame worked. obstacles that no one else has. No he question about it. came out of nowhere. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in that simple advice that he gave me on, on, on the construction site that day. Just see what people want. Give it to them. Um, you know, there are a lot of aphorisms and kind of business maxims. Your book really is sort of path, half a sort of a business success story based on your personal experience with the man who became president. Um, and, and some of these are really about his, his incredible determination. It's clear, you know, he is a, someone with extraordinary work ethic, great drive, somebody who even his critics acknowledge raised his children really to be on the straight and narrow, didn't treat them in an entitled way, always told them not 100%. drink, not smoke. Um, and, and that's an achievement in upon itself. Um, and I think his, his ability to bounce back, the advice he gave you when you were working in Scotland after on his golf course after you had a couple of setbacks, um, and you should tell the story, is, you know, bounce back. Right. Don't let it get you down. Um, on the one hand, he's got the reputation for elevating people based on gut and loyalty to jobs they haven't done before. It's sink or swim. Right. Don't ask me any questions unless you need to, but go and do it. Right. Well, hey, I'm living, living proof. proof. On the other hand, you tell a fascinating story about a greenskeeper named Andy. I think he has a more elevated title than that. Right. Who pruned trees on his golf course. Right. And... Um, did his job, did what was required to do, but Donald Trump went ballistic on him and said, you know, if I rip off your arms, will you be healthier? Yeah, so where's well, that balance between micromanagement and, uh, and, and, and go ahead, go do, go do it, don't tell me about it unless you have a problem? Well, that's a, just a funny story, and I think, you know, look, obviously he's aware that you prune trees, and sure. I mean, he understands the logic behind it, but I think the point that he was trying to make, and he did it very forcefully, was listen to what I'm telling you. You know, at the end of the day... That course is his product. It has his name on it. You know, he is the boss. You have to follow instructions. And I think that was the moral of that story. Listen to what you're being told and do it. But that's very different than being, I trust you, go do this. I'm not going to micromanage you. It, it yeah, seems well, to be both a micro and a macro manager. You know, well, different set of facts and different scenarios require, you know, different levels of oversight. Um, but, you know... Certainly in, in, in my case, um, you know, I was a lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer. And, you know, I had a little bit of experience in development. You know, I had worked on construction sites for some summers uh, when I was a kid in college. Uh, but he 
you know, he saw something in me, and I, I think if you were to ask him, you know, what's the magic word? Is, you know, Soreal the smartest, fastest guy out there? Probably not. Um, but I trusted him, and he knew what I wanted. Okay, and when you're in someone in his position, and you're running a project overseas, and you're relying on someone to be on the ground as eyes and ears, trust is essential. And I think that was another big dominant theme in the organization. There was a high level of trust and respect amongst the people that worked there for many reasons. Um, but you call it the, 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 the world's most successful mom and pop. Yeah, that was a, uh, that, I think that was a Don Jr. Uh, quote. Um, you know, it, it is a family-run business. We're not a private. We're not a publicly held mm -hmm. company, uh, and that creates a very different dynamic um, for somebody like me that was out building things. I came to work every day, and I looked at people in the eye that were spending the money. It wasn't like I was dealing with these amorphous shareholders, or you know, I would sit every day with the people whose money I was spending, uh, and it's a very, very different. Uh, environment, but sure. it, it creates a tight, you know, high level of trust, and that's something that I liked, and I, I thrived on it. And, and, and loyalty being a, a baseline. Loyalty was a big theme there. One of the big projects you worked on was was Scotland, um, Aberdeen. And w was that you'd say your primary project? That was really the uh, I, I I came into the company, you know, the whole uh, you know process how I I, I met Mr. Trump, um, you know, is an interesting one, but you know, as it turned out, I kind of a crazy background. Uh, my father uh, is a Coptic Orthodox Christian, Christian from Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, he left uh, late 50s, early 60s due to discrimination, was uh, studying medicine in England. My mother uh, is Scottish from the Isle of Lewis, born in Stornoway, which is the same island and town that President Trump's mother is from. What are the odds? Odds are incredible, and uh, I was actually, I was in private practice. I was representing a group of uh, individuals that were trying to develop what is now Trump Bedminster, and they were having some issues. Trump came along, bought it out, and the uh, groundbreaking ceremony, I literally was standing at a buffet about to get some shrimp. Uh, true story. It's a Saturday morning. I just walked up to him. I said, hey, look, I'm George Soriel. I was working at this law firm, Dakota's Fitzpatrick, and you know, I work with Jason, and oh yeah. I just said, look, is it really true? Your mom is from Stornoway, because uh, those were probably you know Wikipedia didn't exist back then. And yeah, what do you know about Stornoway? And I said, well, that's where my mom is from, and for the first twenty something years of my life, that's where I spent my summer holidays. And bang, we started talking. That's and, a strong connection. Yeah. You know, I mentioned to him that I was looking to buy an mm -hmm. apartment. Oh, you got to come to Trump World Tower. I want you in the building because that was right around when that building was being rolled out. He said, call this person and, you know, let's make a deal and I want you in the building. And, you know, that's another thing. A lot of people say things like that and they don't deliver. Oh, yeah, give me a call. But I called. Come on in. I ended up buying a condo from him. And uh, I got involved with the building politics. I became president and more and more time. And, hey, maybe I'll work with him. And Sounds like a very similar path as Michael Cohen. Yeah, well, Michael Cohen, uh, both Michael and I were involved in that you know, there was a situation with Trump World Tower. Uh, Michael owned a number of units there. Uh, I owned the unit. I lived there. Uh, and, you know, we both got involved and took care of the problem. Um, and that kind of brought me closer into that world. And um, I started to talk to people that I'd worked yeah, but with. But he was just, he was a friend of yours, very close. Michael was a friend of and coworker. Michael was a friend of mine. And since you mentioned him... Um, you know, I think we're all stunned at what happened. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I, I think one day Michael will deeply regret what he did. Okay, now, I hope he's using his time in prison wisely. Mm -hmm. I don't have any malice, despite the headache that he's caused from all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope he uses that time wisely and comes out a better person. But make no mistake about it, he's there for his own crimes. He didn't pay taxes. He defrauded banks. He lied to Congress. He, he also facilitated campaign finance payments to Stormy Daniels on behalf of the president with the People president's own checks. People don't go to jail for FEC violations. But you don't, you don't contest that. Okay, I, look, I, I, I wasn't involved. Okay, I really, I, I, I can't, and I'm, I'm not trying to evade your, your questions. I don't know anything about that stuff. 
Anything? Okay, I don't. I mean, beyond what I've read, like well, you, you and I, close no, office. I worked in, by that point, I'd been working in Palm Beach for four years. Uh, I left the Trump org base in New York at the end of 2014. I did not Before set, the campaign. Before the campaign, I did not set foot in Trump Tower until after the election. I did not set foot once in Trump Tower. Interesting detail. Uh, I want to go back to Scotland for a second because you spent a lot of time there. Um, One of the fascinating stories is is uh, Donald Trump, I was going to say President Trump, but then just Donald Trump, um, getting in a huge fight about windmills. Right. Uh, This is a huge issue. And he really seems to hate windmills. And he insists on calling them windmills. You point out they're wind turbines. He knows the difference. He just viscerally understands that to call them windmills makes him silly. Right. Why does he hate them so much? Well, you know, look, you got to really go back to we bought that piece of land, okay? And it's very hard to assemble Mm -hmm. 1,400 acres of land on the coast in that part of the U.K. Uh, We're very lucky that we're able to do it. We went to great lengths to get the project approved, okay, and... At some point during the process, we heard that there was this proposal by a, uh, I believe, a Swedish company called Vattenfall, uh, which I think are owned by the Swedish government, to build these turbines off the coastline. The initial reaction was, okay, well, you know, tell us more. Where are they going to be? We were assured by everyone, including the first minister of Scotland, who Alex Salmon, um, who now is actually facing criminal charges for sexual assault. I think he's going to go to jail. But I personally stood with him at the coast, and he held up his his thumb like this and said, they're going to be so far out there. The quote from him was, it's going to be like a thumbnail on the horizon. It was more like a fist, huh? Well, we went forward at great expense. We were probably three-quarters of the way through building the first golf course along with roads and infrastructure. We get the first draft proposal, and they're way closer. They're right off our coastline. So what else are we supposed to do? We have to defend our investment. We were lied to at the highest level, and we had to defend our investment. And, you know, we fought it. We did what we could. And, 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 you know, ultimately it's a very well-regarded golf course, and he spends a lot of time at his golf courses. Um, I I noticed in in April of... of, uh, 2019, he said that windmills cause cancer. Did he ever say anything like that to you? I don't Does he believe you know, that. Look, I don't remember hearing that. Uh, you'd be amazed that the the amount of, you know, I never expected that I would become, you know, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but just in the course of this battle, you speak to a lot of people that are experts, and sure. you know, look, there are there are some, you know, I I can't speak to you know cancer, but these things cause a flicker effect. Uh, they do impact the health of people living around them. I mean, that's a fact. Uh, if you've ever seen that shadow. Um, but, you know, hey, look, we, uh, we did what we had to do. We fought it with everything we had. And, you know, it was a, it's a difficult thing to fight in a country where their entire policy is based on, you know, creating... It wasn't an easy battle. Well, you've, got, um, you've got a lot of, uh, of sort of green sensibility, concern about climate change, renewable energy. Were you involved in the in the um, Irish uh, golf yes, course? Yes, well? I was actually. That was uh, I was one of the first people, along with Don Jr., to see that property. And uh, you know, it's another interesting story. We just kind of went there to collect data. We heard it was a great place. Uh, it was another Lynx coastal course, mm-hmm. very, very similar to ours. And we said, let's go check it out. And we loved it. Uh, and then, lo and behold, I got a call one day from. You know, President Trump said, hey, look, it's on the market. Let's get it. And we just grabbed it. I mean, I, I think he called me at about 9 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, we had a deal in principle five hours later, and we uh, signed on the dotted line on Friday. You know, it, it's interesting because um, his golf courses are well-regarded. He spends a lot of time there. Um, but the company, um, I think in the last year or so, put in for a seawall. Right. Um, and made specifically the case that climate change was why there was a need to increase the seawall. I, I think the official filing said the, uh, the sea could be expected to reasonably raise at the right uh, twice of what's presently occurring. Obviously, President uh, Trump um, does not believe in climate change. He's called it's a hoax. Um, is there any contradiction there between what the company did and the argument it made for its own self-interest in the seawall and I mean, the president's you, personal beliefs? You're, you're pointing out an obvious contradiction. But there's a difference between what's said and done politically. And in Ireland, you are required by regulation to address climate change in your applications. 
you have no choice. But you want so, to build the seawall. You're, you're petitioning to build to. the seawall in the interest of the property. Yeah, we have to build a seawall because sure. there's uh, you know, a long-time problem with erosion. Um, you could blame it on climate change. I mean, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I, I can't give you an answer as to why it's happening. But it's a problem, um, and we've got to get that done. Um, when you were, you have a whole chapter, it's fascinating, about all the people who tried to sort of default during the fiscal crisis. Um, and you were relatively new at the company. Right. Um, and, and you said that President uh, Trump was then in a very strong cash position, in part because of, uh, of The Apprentice. But there's a fascinating detail around that time that I don't recall being mentioned, which is the relationship with Deutsche Bank, where he'd taken out a loan, I think it was around $640 million. And then when the fiscal crisis happened, he sued Deutsche Bank, right. saying that they were partly responsible for the global calamity, I guess under the, uh, you know, the Act of God provision. As a lawyer, I mean, that's just, that's a, whatever else you want to say about it, it's a pretty gutsy move. I think chutzpah would be the term we'd use in New York. Sure. Uh, were you involved in that? I wasn't in involved in it. And, you know, look, John, you know that, you know, I'm a lawyer. I, although I'm no longer part of the company, it's just not appropriate for me to get into the air, you know, that type of thing anyway. Was that, but was I, I wasn't. Typical, though. I mean, look, I, I think he's made a very good career out of using litigation and the laws to his advantage. I mean, it's something that he's very skilled at. And, and, and from, a, from a, a lawyer perspective, and we see somebody who would use the threat of lawsuits as leverage in, in deals? Absolutely. I think sure. he'd be the first one to admit it. And, you know, look, John, in our business, I mean, it's a tough business. You know, it's not easy. Sure. People take a look at, you know, people look at buildings and they think they just sprout out of the ground. I mean, the amount of work that goes into it uh, it's a tough business, and sometimes, you know, you have to flex your muscle and litigate. That's just how it is. Well, and toughness is one of the, the, the real themes of, of Donald Trump. That's right. Um, you know, I think um, uh, your co-author's wife said that, you know, all's fair in love and war, that pretty much sums up Donald Trump's approach to life. It's a dangerous world, okay? Look at the spectrum of issues that, whether it's him or anyone who occupies that office, is dealing with. Um, terrorism, uh, trade issues, sure. everything else, it takes guts. I mean, it's not, I don't think the Oval Office is a position that should be occupied by, you know, someone that is not capable of being tough and handle conflict. And I think that's certainly something you know, certainly on both counts. comfortable with conflict. And he teaches people to be comfortable with conflict. You know what? Conflict is a part of life, John. And, you know, again, not to keep going back to the, you know, lessons of teaching my kids, but... Sure. You know, look, there, there's, there, there seems to be this movement away from conflict, okay? Everybody's got to agree with everyone else. When anyone else does, everything is acceptable. And, you know, look, I'm all for that, and I'm all for the concept of we all do need to respect each other more. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, life is tough, okay? And adversity, it's just conflict and adversity are reality. The so you know, people have to be comfortable in, in dealing with these things. And, you know, look, I, I think when you want to measure a person, okay, to really get the measure of a person, it's easy when it's easy, okay? But you see how a person mm -hmm. reacts when they're kicked or when they're down or how they handle adversity. That's when you see what someone's really made for. So I, I think it's, yes, it's character. And I, I think part of being, you know, a happy, successful, well-integrated person is you have to learn how to manage conflict, and you have to learn how to manage adversity and deal with it. That is life. You think uh, Donald Trump's a well-integrated person? I think he's a well-integrated person. I, you, Certainly you know, successful. I, I, I think he, uh, you know, he thrives on being challenged. I think he is someone that you know can thrive. A lot of us process and deal with things like conflict differently. Uh, I think he's certainly not someone that shies away from it. And I think that conflict brings out, you know, the best in him. There's an interesting interview you have with Eric Trump um, in, in the book, and he's talking about North Korea. And he says something to the effect of, uh, sometimes you need to be a bully to deal with a bully, right. which speaks to that toughness with that willing to have confrontation. Um, but things certainly have changed in, in that relationship and in, in the president's relationship with many sort of strong men on the world stage. Um, where he, you know, in the case of North Korea, now talks about you know, all the letters, beautiful letters he's getting sent, their pen pals. He takes his own instincts about the integrity of their relationship over the intelligence and the advice of his own national security uh, advisor. Does that surprise you, given his reputation for toughness or conflict? Because 
that's not, he certainly went well beyond that stage. He seems to have been quite taken in by North Korea's dictator. I don't think he's been taken in. I, 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 don't, I, I think that's a, a real underestimation of who he is. So what's but, the underlying strategy you know, this, then? This, this, the is, this is what I would say, okay? If you can remember when President Obama was leaving office, mm -hmm. I don't remember where I saw it or where I read about it, but I remember one of his final pieces of advice uh, before leaving the office to incoming President Trump was, watch the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. That's your hotspot. That's the biggest threat you have right now. Okay, and let's go back two years. Missiles were flying every other day. You know, we had the Olympics coming up. Everybody was worried, is there going to be some disaster? So what did President Trump do? Hey, let me just go out and meet this guy. Okay, because that's what business people do. Mm -hmm. Okay, I found in my own you know, personal life and in my business life, sometimes when you have a real conflict with someone, let's put it all down. Let's, let's, let's get together and, and talk it out. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So, for weeks, the, you know, the academics, the pundits, the experts on international relations, they all criticized them. Oh, you need, you know, one year of preparation to hold successful, meaningful bilateral negotiations, blah, blah, blah. All right, I don't know anything about that stuff. Okay, I'm not a diplomat, I'm, I'm not a politician, but I understand people. And I think Trump took the approach of, let's just go, let me go meet this guy. Okay, is the problem resolved? No. Do we have work to do going forward? Of course we do. Are we in a better place than we were two years ago? Absolutely. It's diffused. Now, look, I don't it's, pay it's attention. Certainly the, the tension is diffused, but if, if the tension is diffused on a top-line level, but they're continuing to uh, build their missile capability, um, is that success in terms of the art of the deal? I don't think we have gotten to a point where we can judge whether or not this works. I think what we can say is the situation is diffused. I think all of us are sleeping a little better. Does work have to be done? Yes. They're talking to each other. I don't get buried in the day-to-day, -day, oh, we sent out this tweet or he complimented sure. a letter. You know, nobody knows how to read people better than him. And I, I think sometimes... You think that's one of his great skills? I think he's a great reader of people. And sometimes you have to give a strategy time. Okay? And... I think instead of trying to tear the guy down for every single thing he says and support him, he's the president. Let well, him get on I, with I, it. I think it's about okay, using your, us, your insight. It's getting your insight into what his negotiation strategy might be because that initial framing of, you know, sometimes it takes a bully to take on a bully seems to be not operative. So I'm wondering if there's something deeper going I, on. For example, with Vladimir Putin, are you surprised that he doesn't, isn't more tough with him, or is that about building rapport in private? Do you I think? mean, I think he's been pretty tough with him. And again, you know, look, I watch well, the news. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not part of the administration. Um, you know, if as, he's a counterpuncher, that's worth a counterpunch, right? But who are, who's our biggest threats right now? Okay, let's just think about this for a second. And again, mm -hmm. I'm just talking like a layperson. I'm yeah. not, you know, I need to emphasize that I'm not part of the, of, of, of the administration. I'm not a politician. But, you know, I'm a regular old person that looks at the news... You know, like, who happened to have worked with the President of the United States for a decade, which is right, pretty but, unusual. You know, who, I, in my view, um, you know, we have issues with China, we have issues sure. with Russia. I mean, we can see that these are the big emerging, you know, forces that we have to deal with, okay? Don't I want my president, isn't it pretty smart for him to have good relationships with those leaders, okay? Isn't that a smart thing? Okay, I take comfort in the fact that these people are all talking to each other, okay? Now, I don't even want to get into the whole, you know, all the craziness that's gone out there with Russia. I mean, if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. Sure. But, you know, just think strategically for a second, okay? Don't you want your president to have a working relationship with nations that are the biggest threats, okay? Now, I'm not saying that he should be holding to them, and I don't think he's beholden to anybody, okay? But... Having dialogue is a good thing. Period. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the question is whether uh, there's danger that sometimes in the pursuit of a good relationship, you can ignore confronting facts, however uncomfortable. And, and th there's a balance there you're discussing. I think the real question is whether that's being reflected in, in these relationships. Um, you know, you, you, you brought up Russia, and obviously one of the open questions is, at a time when uh, the Trump Organization wasn't getting many loans from American banks, um, they're 
a lot of talk and evidence and statements that, that they were getting a lot of money from the Russians. I don't know what that means, though, John. Sure. I mean, were Russians buying our apartments? Yeah, no, they have money. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, in you, cash. You know, I, 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 but what does that mean? I mean, you talk to any developer, you talk to any New York developer at our level that produces product mm -hmm. like we do, there's a lot of Russians buying those units. Why? Because they have money. Okay? And at the same time, they also recognize quality. So I don't, you know, I don't see the issue there. Well, I think the question is whether, um, whether there's been any uh, compromise. Well, I think what people are trying to account for is how come the president's been so reluctant throughout to criticize Vladimir Putin when he criticizes almost anybody else on a hair trigger. You know, I, I, I think he's been tough with Russia, and I, I, I think, you know, look, the whole subject has just been debated ad nausea. Mm -hmm. I mean, the country has gone through two years of investigation. It hasn't really produced anything. You know, we should really just move on. Move on. And, you know, whether it's Democrat or Republican, and, you know, I, I, I think I said to you before we started talking, um, you know, somebody like me, I, I'm a Republican, I vote for Republicans, but if a Democrat has a good idea, I'm going to support it. And I sure. think there's a lot of people out there like that. What I'm seeing in Washington now... Who are the Democrats you like on the stage today? Out of the current crew? So not only running for president. Who do I like? I mean, I, you know, I don't think I would support or vote any of them. I mean, if you want to talk about likable people, I mean, I could probably sit down and have a, you know, a cup of coffee with Bernie Sanders and find it entertaining. Uh, I don't support his policy. I think he's dead wrong that, about... Yeah. But, you know, he's... I know a lot of people like him. Uh, you know, that probably... I could say that about the majority of the candidates. Um, I don't think any of them are equipped to run the country. Um, you know, but I, I, I'm sure I'd get along with a lot of them on a personal uh, level. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I think, I think one of the things we all should agree on anyway is that we, we have a tendency in our country to make our political opponents our personal enemies right now. Right. That's a dangerous thing. I think um, you write about the president's Twitter habits right. in the book, um, and those certainly are about taking political enemies and make, political opponents and making them personal enemies a lot. Um, does that reflect the man you knew, and is that the way you think a president should conduct himself? Oh, I, I think a president should conduct themselves the, however they see fit. I mean, one thing about Trump, well, that's a, that's he was a transparent. World without rules. You got with, well, well, obviously I'm not suggesting anything untoward or breaking any laws, but I think with President Trump, maybe more so than any other candidate, I mean, you got what you saw, okay? There was no covering anything up. I mean, anybody that voted for him or people that didn't vote for him, you knew what you got. And look, you know, those are his habits. Those are his styles. Uh, they might be different from mine. There's certainly been many occasions, and you bring up Twitter. Um, you know, and I wrote about this in the book. We were sitting down having lunch uh, about a year ago, and five or six people were there. And, you know, he started the conversation by saying, you know, look, some well-intentioned people, well-intentioned people have been very critical of my Twitter habits. Uh, and he was kind of polling everybody. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm kind of a straight shooter and, mm -hmm. you know, people, oh, you need to rein it in a little bit. And, you know, my answer was a little different. I said, look, there are things that you say in Twitter that I wouldn't say. Okay. Right off the bat. And look, I've, we have debated many things. And that's another big misconception is that he's not open to criticism. You know, I work really closely with him every day. And there were a lot of things that I disagreed with him. And I never was rebuked for voicing an opinion. He didn't always agree with me. He said and, he would erupt like Krakatoa. Well, that's right. But, but that, that what you're saying, that wasn't about someone offering uh, a disagreement. That was somebody screwing up on the job. Yeah, and, you know, look, I mean, the, the, the eruption about Krakatoa, I mean, you know, look, he's a guy that's very passionate, feels very strongly about what he's doing, okay? And sure. when you're working in that environment, and, you know, that's another big theme in the organization, that everybody there really was pretty happy. People loved what they were doing. I mean, mm -hmm. if you didn't have that you know, desire to, to be involved. You're at the wrong place and you'd be miserable. Uh, but when you have that sort of, of environment, you know, passion, eruptions, things are going to happen from time to time. But with him, you know, look, I didn't like being on the receiving end at the time. Sure. But a point was made, okay, it was water under the bridge, and you moved on. And I've worked with other people. I find one of the most frustrating things 
and I hear about it. I mean, I, I had a lot of different people working for me over the years. People are frustrated when they don't know where they stand with somebody. Okay, and that's even further exacerbated when that's your superior. I don't know if they, does this person think I'm doing a good job or a bad job? I always knew where I stood with him. Well, and, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about the president is he's very authentic and transparent on one level. And yet he, as sort of a, a hype man, and you know, he calls it truthful hyperbole, at least in the context of New York real estate, uh, he tells an extraordinary number of mistruths, uh, things that are not factually correct, some of them uh, could be called lies if you can divine intent. Washington Post has it over 10,000. How do you, first of all, see that? Is that an unfair standard to hold this president to? And second of all, the way that people seem to react to him as an authentic liar, they see him as being fundamentally truthful even if he's not telling the truth, his supporters sometimes say. Who, who am I to, you know, again, I, I, I think that Was you have to... you saw working with him? No, absolutely not. He never, never. He never lied to me and... You know, I, I said to someone earlier this week, I mean, lying was certainly not part of the business model at the organization. And I think you talk to people that work with us, and we're pretty straight shooters. Mm -hmm. Okay, we say what we mean. But look, I'm not in any position to offer, you know, a comment on every single thing that he said or does. You know, who amongst us hasn't stretched the truth a little bit? Uh, Do you think you've you know, look, the, the whole the last three years. Well, look, look, let's look at what happened to him. I mean, you know, a lie that nobody ever talks about, mm -hmm. you know, since we were talking about Russia. OK, why aren't people talking about the fact that it was the Hillary campaign that hired Fusion GPS to do this ridiculous, you know, dossier that dragged the country through a bunch of nonsense for a couple of years? There's a lot of lies there, and I, I think do, now do you that think the, they're the, equivalent of a, of a foreign government trying to influence an election on on his behalf. John, we're not we're not Boy Scouts, okay? What we're really talking about is espionage, okay? And that's gone on for hundreds of years. People spy on us. We spy on them, okay? That's just how it is. Now, look, I'm not condoning it, okay? But who was at the helm in 2016? There was another president. What did that president do to stop it? Nothing. That's not Why aren't well, what he told? He told them to knock it off. Well, I remember in front of Putin directly. He held a bipartisan meeting on the Hill trying to get support. McConnell refused to do it, and then the Intelligence Committee came out with a report oh, saying on, Russia John. was he, influencing he, our election. He didn't do, he and, didn't then he sank, and then he sanctioned the Russians, which during the transition caused a whole bunch of problems. But I'm not going to go there because you weren't involved in that. I wasn't. What, one thing that is in your book, though, is you have an amazing chapter called "The Man Who Never Forgets." Right. And I think it's very clear, Donald Trump has an energy level that is not typical for anyone, let alone a 73-year-old. He is somebody who is a workaholic, but in a seemingly healthy way. I mean, he, he does it all the time, and yet he seems to have a fairly well-rounded life. Um, the man who never forgets, though, see, the detail of his memory is extraordinary. Um, and yet, in the Mueller report, he told the special counsel he couldn't remember or recall 36 times. How, you How know, do you make sense of that? I'm not a doctor, okay? I don't know it's not. I mean, I, I don't have particular insight into issues of memory and, you know, and, and, and again, I didn't even... Is someone with the greatest the memory you've ever seen? Well, I, you know, look, I have a very good memory, okay? But if you ask me what I had for breakfast this morning, I probably couldn't tell you. Okay, the brain, it, it, I, I the can't comment on him that. as having a really extraordinary memory, which I believe is true. You say he, he will go through his properties and remember minute details of conversations in order from years I, before. I, I wasn't involved in any of that. And again, I'm not trying to be evasive. I, I'm really making a good faith effort mm -hmm. to try to answer your questions. Uh, I didn't read the Mueller report because I thought it was a bunch of nonsense from the beginning. So I, I kind of haven't gone through some of these statements with the level of detail that you know, perhaps I should if I want to really answer these questions. Um, I just thought the whole thing was crazy. So I, I, I can't, you know, you're asking me to speculate or offer some kind of expert judgment on, you know, a man's memory. Uh, if, I can't. Had, if you hadn't had a chapter called The Man Who Never Forgets, I probably wouldn't have uh, asked you that You know, question. that's a literary, you know, I think anybody that knows him would, would, would say the same thing. The guy has, you know, what impresses me the most is ability to member visually. I mean, there would be times where, you know, I'd be in Scotland, let's say, and I'm out on the ninth hole, and we're having some issue positioning a bunker, and his ability to remember every blade of grass or there's a little bump in the terrain, I mean, his brain, you know, he's got a tremendous ability uh, to retain that sort of detail.
and and one would expect that would uh, continue to something as important as a presidential I, 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 election. Uh, in your job as chief compliance officer, that was your most recent capacity within the organization? Yeah, I, I, I came in as a lawyer and then very quickly got involved heavily in development. I still did legal things from time to time, but I was really you know, a development guy. Um, but post-election, I switched back over and I took the position of EVP and chief compliance counsel. That's a big job for a guy who's president with an unprecedented situation well, regarding not putting his companies in a blind trust. Well, it was a, you know, look, the, the, going back, in, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, look, I've got all the solutions, but, you know, let's take a look at what really was going on. Um, you know, it's not that, I, I think we were surprised, and I say that with deference and respect, uh, but he got elected and we had a very short amount of time to really figure out, you know, how are we going to manage these issues? Did you, so, you thought about it before? I mean, did you, you thought he was going to be elected? You say I mean, so. You know, me, you guys me, planned me, for that personally. I mean, I, I just again, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't involved in the campaign. Right. I, I was physically. You, so know, you were brought in another, to say we've got to figure out how to handle this potential. I, I was brought in because I, I, I think I had a reputation. You know, I think I was trustworthy, and mm -hmm. I really knew. Really? You know, I've been with the company a long time. And, you know, look, I, again, I'm not the smartest, fastest guy out there, but I'm a quick study. I wouldn't sell okay. yourself short. No, I'm a, I'm a quick study. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I took on the role. Uh, we, we, you know, we brought in some really good people, some of the top government ethics people. And how are we going to do this? And, you know, there were so many experts out there that offered one opinion or another. And, hey, let's sell everything, okay? Let's think about the mechanics of doing that. Let's just take an asset, you know, like a hotel that's, Three, four hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. You don't just sell those things, mm -hmm. okay? There's a long process mm -hmm. to get rid of them, and then you have to vet your buyers. So that task of complete liquidation, complex, it would take a long time. So look, we did the best we could do with the advice. We took him out of the business. We put in. He still has interest in the business, but no managing. No day-to-day management because he he's the president. He has no management, and believe right. me, with, with the magnitude of, you know, issues that are going across his desk every day. That should go without saying. He's not interested in, you know, what we're going to do to a green at well, some He was very involved in the business throughout the 2016 campaign. He was minutely oh, involved he, in the post office renovation. He, you write he the book. had a right to be, but yeah, since, sure. since the election, that wasn't the case. Sure. So, you know, look, we endeavored, we picked a position, and, you know, look, the next thing you're going to ask me about, I know, is the, you know, emoluments issue. Well, I'd be interested but, in what you're reading of the emoluments clause of the Constitution well, let's, is let's, because let's, you had to deal with that directly let's, in let's, that job. Let's take a look at it. Yeah. Okay? Um, you know, if I have an issue with, um, you know, a, ta a tax issue, let's say, okay, I can go to IRS regs, mm -hmm. I can read advisory opinions, I can read case law, and probably after a little bit of time, we can figure it out. Okay? This is uncharted territory. Okay, you've got the word emoluments, which is referenced a couple of times in the Constitution. There's no, you know, codified set of rules on emoluments. There's barely any case law. Okay, there's a split in legal. Anyone who tells you that's a definite a violation of the emoluments provision, you know, short of an extreme ridiculous scenario, is wrong. But let me tell you what we did, John. We took the position and we published it in a mm -hmm. white paper which pre was prepared by Fred Fielding, mm -hmm. who's one of the leading mm -hmm. government ethics, served many administrations. Yeah. And, you know, again, just by way of illustration, we took the position that patronage at our hotels, someone coming in and paying us to spend the night in a room or having dinner or having a drink at the bar, uh, 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 you know, an at-length regular old market exchange, we took the position that that is not an emolument, okay? And there's actually a lot of legal justification behind that and rational justification. The guys that wrote the Constitution, many of them had businesses, and many of them continued to operate their businesses with foreign governments, okay, while they were in office. So you know, I, I, I can't it, believe... It, it, it's interesting because it, it is, you know, there obviously is precedent. You know, you've had presidents who have not been able to keep gifts they get from foreign governments for reasons related right. to the emoluments clause. In the Constitutional Convention, James Madison makes it clear, A, it's a, a, it's a potentially impeachable crime, but it really is about corruption. It's about right. bribery. Right. Um, and, and I think what's tricky here is that, for example, in the case of the, the Trump post office, uh, the former post office, now the hotel in Washington, 
Uh, you've had 22 governments stay there. Um, uh, well, I think it raises the question because that money is ultimately going into the Trump, is not ultimately, is going to the Trump organization. No, it's not. Okay, we went, you know, again, we picked a position. Okay, we created, well, let me, let me, let me just explain yeah, yeah, it please. to you. We picked a position, okay, and, you know, look, there's ultimately two litigations going forward. At some point, some judge is going to make a decision and define an emolument. But for now, it's an unresolved area of the law. We picked a position that's reasonable, mm -hmm. it's defensible. Mm -hmm. We prepared our own internal policies and procedures that were consistent with the position. We applied it universally throughout the portfolio, although not required to. Okay, we went above and beyond what the law requires. And since you brought up foreign governments, you've returned some of that money. We went one step further. Okay, now, you know, everybody knows that, I mean, we've spoken about it publicly at length, that any profit that we get, profit, mm -hmm. okay, it doesn't mean that somebody came and spent $5 that, you know, we're going to give the $5 back. We have to cover our costs, but profits go back. Okay, now, let me give you some figures here, okay? We went out of our way, and we have publicly said on numerous occasions, we don't want foreign government business, okay? If a foreign government comes to our hotel, you know, we're not going to turn them away, but it's a very small. What do you think the percentage of business, of gross revenues, let's just talk about OPO, and that's really sure. where OPO, that's probably where 95% of our foreign government. Just take a, a stab at, because I, 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 I always I'm love not going to do a percentage. I do know that NBC News has reported 22 governments have stayed there. And also there is an issue of um, no, it's, politics. It's 1.5%. 1.5% it, it, of our gross comes from foreign governments. We turn these people away. You go down the road, okay, you're saying we had 22 foreign governments. You go down the road to Ritz-Carlton, that number is probably 100 or the Four Seasons. We go out of our way. We do not have personnel at the hotel that actively solicits foreign governments. We don't I go door not. to door. We don't. Okay. And, and did you have if a they conversation? Come, they as, did you have a conversation as chief compliance officer about um, the overall appearance of issues of profiting off the presidency? For example, RNC money being spent at Trump properties, political events. Was that something that concerned you, or were you really under the emoluments clause that your primary concern so it was foreign governments that you were trying to create the brightest division on? Well, I mean, of course, we're, you're, you're concerned about everything, but, you know, the hot issue was foreign governments. And again, although not legally required to, not legally required to, we went above and beyond, and we're now returning any profits, and we've done that for the past two years. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, that process is very vigorous, okay? We, it's, it's not a static policy that sits, you know, on the wall in an office somewhere. And I had almost daily dialogue with the general manager. I spoke to him all the time. We had monthly meetings, quarterly meetings. Annually, we'd sit down. If anything was even close, we'd throw it in the pile of, look, let's just do the voluntary donation because it's not worth it. But again, it's a small part of our business. I mean, the only, you know, by and large, most foreign governments, they'll, the equivalent of their State Department, they'll let us know we need X amount of rooms and we need a conference facility. They're pretty easy to identify. Mm -hmm. uh, we took some criticism from uh, a certain congressman from Baltimore. Uh, who Elijah said, Cummings, you seem to have a lot of good feelings about. I don't have, you know, look, I, on, on, a, on a personal level, uh, you know, I, I respect him. Uh, I've, I've never met him. I've offered to meet with him. I've offered to sit down and explain these things mm -hmm. in detail. Um, but, you know, he criticized us for not, you know, basically profiling every guest and actually, we acknowledge in our policy that there's going to be a couple of people that slip through. If a diplomat that we don't know comes in and uses his own personal credit card, okay, doesn't identify himself, nobody recognizes us, how are we going to catch that? But then again, what's the harm? Isn't this all done to prevent currying favor, whatever that means? If we don't even know that the person coming in is a diplomat, where's the threat of currying the favor? So when you kind of look at it like that, I think we've gone to extraordinary lengths to manage that situation. I think we've done a good job. I will stand by it. I mean, that was my area job, of, yeah. of responsibility. And sure. I think any reasonable person that understands what we did will agree. And then, you know, when you, when you extrapolate it, 1.5% of, of one property, you know, when you extrapolate that over the portfolio, 
we're not really making any money from foreign governments. It's just, it's, it's, it's another, you know, fake narrative. Final question. Do you, do you hope to play any role in the 2020 campaign? You know, look, I, I um, you know, I turned 50. I've got young kids, um, you know, living in a different state, kind of different place in my life. Um, will I support him in 2020? 100% absolutely. Uh, you know, I haven't really gotten there. Uh, I, I, I felt it was the, it was a difficult decision for me to leave the organization. I mean, these guys were like my family. Sure. I, I love the place. Uh, but I felt it was the right thing to do, you know, on many levels. And, you know, how do I really go out and aggressively promote a book when I'm the chief compliance counsel? So I thought, you know, my message would be much more effective if I went out on my own. And I, I think that should also give some insight into how much I want the stories in these books to get out there so people really understand what President Trump is like as a person. To me, that was more important than my job at the organization. So, you know, for now, John, I'm just trying to figure it out. We're uh, promoting a book. Uh, I'm going to be involved in some initiatives to protect minority uh, Christian communities in the Middle East that have been decimated by ISIS, um, just actually all minority communities in the Middle East. Uh, so I'm kind of going to immerse myself in, in some of those issues for a while. Community has been targeted. Uh, yeah, we, we've had a lot of issues, and uh, you know, uh, the church has really been a backbone uh, in my life. Uh, and then you know, we'll figure out what the next move is. Uh, at some point, you got to just shake it up in life, and uh, you know, uh, jump into something new and have optimism and see what happens. Well, clearly, you've learned a lot from Donald Trump as a man in full. And the book is The Real Deal, My Decade Fighting Battles and Winning Wars with Donald Trump. George Soriel, thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's a good discussion. Uh, thank thanks for having me.